Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Why don't you stand and open your Bible to John 13, and Dennis and Nikki are going to read from John 13 for us. All right, good morning. Reading out of John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, as we step into a new year as a church community and family, I want to spend a couple of weeks together with you discussing some of the things that our elder team has discussed and prayed for over the second half of this last year. And like I mentioned to you two weeks ago, some of these topics are things that we've discussed together as a whole, or some of them have just been conversations I've had with them as individuals. But all of these things are really things that even I am very burdened with and pray for for our community as your pastor. And as a disclaimer, these sermons were not written by our team collectively together. So if you have issue with them, then feel free to come and chat with me. Um, But my hope is that if you're with us this year, that you'll grow together with us in humility, in service, in generosity, and in prayer. Those are really the four things that we'll discuss in this little mini-series. And we began two weeks ago by talking about unity through humility. And if you were here, you might remember having the prop set up and working through the four different categories. Um, I had a friend that texted me that afternoon. He had watched our service online two weeks ago where we were talking about doing that, doing theological triaging. And he texted me and said, he said this, he said, it would be so sad but hilariously ironic if your church had a split over the use of props this week. 
a sad irony. Thankfully, it did not, and you're all here. In fact, Mike Negley was with you last week teaching about humility while I, in my pride and arrogance, was trying to prove that I was younger than I actually am. Uh, but Mike did a great job, and I'm so thankful he was with you. You remember that what Jesus prayed for us is that we all may be one, as you, he said, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also, praying for the church, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I mean, can we agree that the world may be skeptical about our beliefs, but we might be okay with that as long as they are first and foremost envious of our love for one another and seeing the uniqueness of that love here. I say that because Jesus was convinced that the unity of the church was essential to the mission of the church. But I want to jump into our second topic, and that's a discussion today on service, specifically on service in submission. And so that's why we are in John's Gospel, chapter 13. And there's three things I want to draw out of this text and for you to consider today about service, specifically service through submission. And the first is I want you to observe that Jesus served others self-sacrificially. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus served others self-sacrificially. You see this in his incarnation. Remember, incarnation simply means to be embodied with flesh or to put skin on. The incarnation is the belief that, yes, Jesus was fully God, but that he was fully God who came down to be fully a man. The infinite becoming finite, the incomprehensible becoming completely tangible. We'd call him, the prophets would tell us, God with us, Emmanuel. You see, the the incarnation is the mystery that sets Christianity aside from every other religion because no other religion presents a God who'd become a man in order to experience and suffer what mankind has faced. Only Christianity has a God who loved us enough to become one of us and then to suffer and die for us. As I've said before, the incarnation takes the God that we needed to be big enough to measure the universe in the span of his hand, the prophet Isaiah said, as he marveled about the amazing power and capability of our God. But the incarnation would make him small enough, we could say, to place his arm around us when we're suffering and sorrowful and to gently whisper to us that he understands. I want to remind you that Jesus served others self-sacrificially, and you see it in his coming. You see it in his incarnation. The God who created the universe would stoop down, you could say, to enter into it, to be subjected to its sorrows. Can I just try to illustrate that, to put that into perspective a bit? And I I know I just used this illustration just a few months ago, but humor me and think about it afresh. If the distance of the earth from the earth to the sun was represented by just a single piece of paper, the width of it, if we said that although the sun is 92 million miles away from us, if we took a single piece of paper and said, well, let's illustrate it and say that that is represented, 92 million miles is represented by just the breath just the width of a single sheet of paper. If that was true, then the distance to our closest star would be comparable to a stack of paper that is 71 feet tall. And just the diameter of our own galaxy would be represented by a stack of paper 310 miles tall. If that stack of paper was placed here at this school that we are gathering at this morning, and then somehow toppled over, it would reach just a mile short of the Las Vegas Strip. If this is the breadth, the the width of a comparison between us and the sun that's 92 million miles away, 
The distance of the width of our galaxy could be represented by a stack of paper that could reach from here all the way to the Las Vegas Strip, or just about a mile short of that. And that is just the breadth of our own galaxy, and that galaxy is hardly a speck of dust amidst the cosmos, amongst the universe that it's set into. Think about it. This is how big, how grand, how massive, how capable our great God is, and that great God stooped down to take on flesh and walk among us. I'd argue that's not someone then that you hire as a consultant for your life or as a personal assistant to help you reach your goals. That's someone that you would bow your knee to as Lord of your life because he's God of the universe. I want to remind you today that Jesus served others self-sacrificially. You see it in his coming, in the incarnation itself, but you also see it in his loving, in his loving you see, Jesus didn't just incarnate, put skin on once when he became a man. Jesus would do that again and again with each person he encountered. He'd, in a sense, love them incarnationally where he'd try their skin on too. Think about the way that he interacted with people throughout his life and ministry. Where you find him before he'd respond with words, you'd catch him responding with emotions. Where the gospel writers would talk about seeing him there before a beggar and he'd sigh deeply within himself. Or before the blind man where he groaned, they said, deep within himself. Where he had pity, they said. Where he was moved with compassion, where he even wept with those who were sorrowful. You see, Jesus could place the needs of others before his own, not just because he embodied the golden rule of treating others the way that he would want to be treated, but because he embodied the perfect self-sacrificial love that is present in the heart of God. Make no mistake, Jesus... He loved and served people self-sacrificially. You see it in his coming. You see it also in his loving. And undoubtedly, you see it in the way that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said it this way in Mark 10, 45. He said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, as powerful as a thing as it is, to see God, the one who created the universe, taking on flesh, stooping down to enter into creation, oh, as impactful as it is, to then see him love and serve the poor, the marginalized, the blind, the lame, the social outcasts, like the tax collectors and sinners, and to see the personhood and dignity that he ascribed to women in a cultural moment where they were mere possession more than they were a person. As impactful as it is to see him lay aside his own garments to wrap himself with the towel, the garment of a servant, and to wash the soil and soot from their well-worn, weary feet in this moment in John 13. Well, think about it. Culturally, this was the job, the job that Jesus took in that moment was the job for the lowest man on the totem pole. In fact, I read some rabbinic documents this week that reference the teaching of ancient rabbis who are Jesus' contemporaries who were trying to expound on and explain what Leviticus chapter 25 verse 39 says about the treatment of fellow Jewish countrymen who sold themselves into personal servitude for a set number of years. Although you could demand of that Jewish brother who's now your servant, although you could demand harsh, intense, hard labor from them, you could not demand them to carry you in a litter. That's one of those chariots without wheels that has the poles through it because they said it was too demeaning to your brother to do that. And you could not demand them to take your shoes off or to tie them for you, much less to wash your feet because it was seen as too demeaning to require that task of a Jewish man. Oh, you may 
pay someone, the rabbinic writings say, to wash your feet, but you couldn't force a Jewish servant to do it for you. The rabbis also noted that children were allowed to be requested by their parents to serve them in this manner, and that students would be doing it to their master or rabbi as a sign of respect for them. But in the moment we just read, there the jar of water and the towel remained untouched, as they declined to even wash their own feet with it, until the master, who is the master of the universe, would stoop down to do for them what they neglected to do for him and seemingly refused to do for one another. You see, as powerful as the incarnation is and as impactful as it is for me to see Jesus even in this moment stoop down yet again to wash their feet, oh, nothing could compare or prepare us for when Christ would again have his garments laid aside. This time not to wash feet, but to cleanse the sinful souls of men as he'd be stripped down naked to be beaten and whipped and to be hung upon a cross. Jesus said it this way, that greater love has no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. And he would do just that. You see, Jesus served others self-sacrificially. Yes, you see it when he stooped down to enter humanity's plight as a man. And yes, he lowered himself to an even greater degree when he stooped down to wash the feet of his disciples. But there's a far greater act of self-sacrificial, humble service for Christ. And it was when he would be lifted up on a cross to wash the sin from our accounts and to reconcile us to God. Like, consider this for a moment. Or marvel at it. Because for so many of us, the Christian message becomes so familiar that we can hear these things and it's just dull drum. We can hear these things and it has no impact. But do we believe these things? Do you believe that God, who created everything, came into the world to do these things? Do you not think of the uniqueness of Christianity? I mean, can you think of any other leader or any other global movement or every, any other world religion where the founder and leader placed himself under those who would follow their leadership, where the leader would serve the needs of the follower, even giving his life for them? Oh, here we find in the story, our great God who measures the universe in the span of his hand is now using that very same hand to hold the foot of a lowly human as he washes it clean. And soon after this moment, he will open those same hands so that spikes could be driven into them in order for him to wash and cleanse us of all of our sins. You see, we're talking about service in submission to Jesus. And I want you to see as we begin that Jesus served us self-sacrificially. You see it in his coming, you see it in his loving, and you undoubtedly see it in his giving his life as a ransom for many. But there's a second thing I want to point out to you from this passage. And that's this. If you're taking notes, write it down. It's that we, as Jesus' followers, are to serve others self-sacrificially. It's that we, as Jesus' followers, are to serve others self-sacrificially. Look again at your Bible where it says it to you. John chapter 13, verse 12. So when he'd washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. Think this through with me. What, what does it mean when Jesus says here that a servant is not greater than his master? I think Jesus is wanting us to be clear that we will not be exempt from needing to follow the example that he set of how to love and serve others. I mean, make no mistake, if we're called a Christian, which literally means a little Christ, then we must serve and love as Jesus has served and loved us. You see, it means that for me as a person who follows Jesus, that I cannot point to something that the Lord Jesus does and says, hey, listen, I'm too important for that. I'm too valuable. I'm too good for that. I can't say that's beneath me. And remember, please, that washing someone's feet in that era was about as low as a person could go and as clear a demonstration of humility as someone could give. And it's exactly what Jesus, who is master and creator of the universe, would do for us. You see, Jesus is our great example demonstrated that there is neither a task that is too low, look at him washing their feet, nor a person that is too low for us to serve and place above ourselves. Because the story is clear that even Judas, who would betray him, who Jesus knew would betray him, was present in this moment and had Jesus serve him too. Pastor and author Craig Rochelle said it this way. He says, if we believe that God wants us happy above all else, rather than acknowledging that our role is to serve God, we wrongly believe that God exists to serve us. God becomes a means to our end, to our happiness. Author Warren Wearsby, in a book entitled On Being a Servant, he wrote it this way. He said, in spite of what some success or prosperity preachers say, God's goal for our lives is not money, but maturity. Not happiness, but holiness. Not getting, but giving. God is at work making people more like his son, and that's what Christian service is all about. I mean, think about it. If you know your Bible well, you know that all over Scripture, we are told we're instructed to serve the Lord. In Psalm 100, it says, serve the Lord with gladness. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, it says, serve the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul. Joshua, it records that he had determined, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, where Paul writes, encouraging us, yes, to serve the Lord, even appealing to us to present our very lives and bodies to God as a living sacrifice. He is not calling for suicide, not at all. He's not asking you to die as a sacrifice, but that you instead would live each day as a sacrifice, that you and I would choose to live for the purposes of God before our own agenda. You see, we as Jesus' followers are to serve others self-sacrificially because it's precisely what Jesus, our master, has done, and a servant is not greater than his master. Can okay, I remember for a second? Remember that Jesus taught us that greatness is redefined by self-sacrificial service. I mean, be clear on this. A desire to be great is not a sinful desire. It's not a bad thing. As long as we allow greatness to be redefined by Jesus. Let me read to you where Jesus discussed this very thing with his disciples from Mark's gospel, chapter 9. It says, Then Jesus, when he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you were disputing amongst yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set 
him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. My friends, all of us, I think, are born with a desire to be great. We want to live a life that matters. We want to make a difference. We want to leave the world better. And Jesus doesn't say that any of that is a bad thing. But the problem for us is that our desire for greatness, although in its infantile state, it's a really beautiful and precious thing, it becomes quickly warped and twisted because of our sinful nature. Because of my ego, it becomes distorted. It goes from a desire to do something great for others, and it turns into a desire to be thought of as great or admired admired as great by others. It shifts from a desire to serve the weak And then we see in so many, it develops into a desire to be empowered and served by the weak. What would start maybe as a desire to do something that matters is quickly distorted and turns into desiring to do something that leaves you admired, respected, powerful, maybe even intimidating or feared. You see, God created all of us with a deep need to be loved, but the subtle distortion of that need is our desire we find to be present in us to be admired. Remember, Jesus didn't blast them in this moment for their desire to be great. Instead, what Jesus does is he redefines it. He redefines what greatness looks like. I'd argue with you, don't be apologetic for wanting to be great and don't discourage your your children from that desire. Just make sure that your definition of greatness is not distorted by the sin nature that you and I carry inside of us. I mean, think about it. When we allow our sin nature to distort our desire for greatness... What does it do to us? Well, it it leaves us empty because it's an empty thing to work and strive for the admiration of other people. Proverbs, in fact, calls it a dangerous trap. I mean, think about this even in, in just using the illustration of social media as an example. In social media, it was great when it felt like it provided a platform for society to be better connected with one another, especially with those that we care about, by seeing snapshots of their normal everyday life in order to greater develop that deeper connection that we long for. Instead, what it ended up doing is it ended up presenting and projecting a carefully curated caricature of who we are that isn't really even the real version of us. But we're promoting this and presenting this carefully curated caricature in order for others to admire us. And when they do, we feel empowered. And so now we're using people. You see, our modern, civilized, advanced culture is so silly because we define our self-worth for so many based on follows and likes. Listen, it's meaningless to work and strive to be successful if success and greatness is just more followers or more money or a bigger house. And the truth is, I don't know if you've caught yourself running in that race, but you quickly find out that it's an empty and unending game because we don't compare and contrast ourselves with people who are behind us in those pursuits. We compare and contrast ourselves with people who are ahead of us. And we find that we always live in someone else's shadow. And we begin to see that envy casts a gloomy shadow that eclipses and overtakes all of life's joys. You see, ambition is not the problem. Selfish ambition is. Oh, don't you, di- don't you see the distorted view we possess of greatness is self-centered, that it's self-destructive even, and that in the end, it only pushes people further away from us. But what if we allowed Jesus to redefine greatness for us? 
What if you could be great, which is a good desire? You could have incredible value and not have to get stuck in the trap and pressure of always comparing yourselves to others and always wanting to be admired by them. But how would the gospel do that? How would the gospel reshape my definition of greatness? How would it free me to pursue a better form of greatness? Remember, we're all hardwired with a deep need to be loved. The distortion of that need is our desire to be admired or respected or powerful. But the gospel of Jesus assures me that I am noticed, that I'm seen, that I'm known, that I matter, and that I'm loved. And those are such freeing realities for me personally that they allow me to live loving and serving and giving to others because I no longer need their affection or love or attention or affirmation in order to feel safe or secure in my own skin because I already receive those things in mass quantity from the God of the universe. You see, the gospel tells me that I'm fully known and fully loved. And to be loved but not known is shallow. But to be known and not loved, it's our greatest fear that people would reject us if they really knew us. Oh, but to be fully known and fully loved is this incredible gift. And it's what our heart longs for more than anything else in the world. And it's what we find and experience in Jesus. And that is what frees us. It deeply impacts us and frees us to love others the way that Christ has first loved us. Because let's be honest, it's a scary prospect to do this. Because we fear that, that if I'm not looking out for myself, well then who will? If I become the servant of all, then who's looking out for my needs? But isn't it a beautiful and a powerful part of the gospel that we all know that Jesus cares for us and that he will look after us because he's already demonstrated the depth of his love for us by going to a cross. My friends, it's been wisely said that God is not looking for great ability in your service so much as he's looking for great availability in the hearts and lives of his people. You see, if you want to be great, you don't have to have grand resources at your disposal. I'm not Oprah and Ellen giving cars away every day. I'm not able to do that. But Jesus said that if you give nothing more than just a cup of cold water in my name to one of my disciples, you'll be rewarded for it. It's the gift of the poorest of poor, just water. You see, I can give people the precious currency of my time and my care. You see, we're talking about service and submission. And I want you to see that Jesus, he served others self-sacrificially. But because of that, we as Jesus followers are to serve others self-sacrificially. My heart's desire for you as your pastor is that you would have a passion and a love for Jesus, not a love for the cause, not even just a love for the book, not at all a love for our brand or our church. No, I want you to have a love, a passionate love for Jesus. And I want for the community around us, yes, here in this room, but outside of this room as well, to experience that love as you love Jesus by loving and serving others around you. You see, you see the, today I think the question that we're meant to consider is to contemplate and consider not if God is calling us to serve. The question is where, how, and who is God calling you to serve today? Your question of the day is not if God is asking you to serve. A servant is not greater than his master. The question is where, how, and who is God calling you to serve? 
And I think Jesus' teaching about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself might just be God's way of telling us that we might not have to look very far to find the who that God has strategically already placed around us for us to love and serve. Because it's true that all of us represent a different sphere of influence and will possess different sense of calling within that. Think about it this way. God has strategically placed you in the city that you reside in and the workplace you find yourself at with the neighbors that you have, even in the midst of the family that you might have mixed feelings about. And they represent a different sphere of influence from the rest of us. God didn't put Jimmy or George or Karen or Trevor into those places. He put you there instead. And I think strategically. God has also given us each distinct and unique calling in life. And I know that for many of you, your vocational work is a service-oriented field. We have many in our church who are educators or medical professionals or serve in the military or as first responders. And I thank you that you chose a service-oriented career path. But for the rest of us, we're not off the hook and you might not completely be either. Because when it comes to our service, Scripture makes it clear that God cares as much about our heart posture as he does about our activity. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul's addressing people who are classified as bond servants, doulos in Greek. These are men who were slaves by choice, not slaves by war. It was typically because someone was indebted to another individual that they would choose then to become their servant to honor that debt. The New Testament writers would latch on to that imagery and that word to depict it, to use it to depict our indebtedness to Jesus and our choice to willingly serve him as his servants by choice, his doulos. And so in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he says it this way. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So can I ask you a couple of questions? The first is this. Although you might not like your job, can you do it as serving unto the Lord and not unto man? Can you conduct yourself as if it was he who was your boss? Or it was him who sat in the next cubicle over as your coworker, Or it is him who is your neighbor that you are to love. Or it's even him who feels like your office nemesis. Or let me ask this. What do you do not for a paycheck, but simply as an act of service to God by serving others around you? Because remember, whatever you do, work out with all your heart as working for the Lord, not only for human masters. Let me speak to you just for a moment before we move on and wrap up to speak to you and to thank you for a moment as your pastor regarding your service just even here to the church. Because in the church world, it's usually said something like this, that that about 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And usually statistically, when you look at surveys, and I looked at them again this week, the numbers actually are even worse post-COVID, but when you look at the statistic, this is how it's represented, that 80% of the congregation typically remains pretty passive in their church. When it comes to living on mission, whether that's in giving or in serving. But I, I want to tell you and commend you and thank you that it's really not the case within our church community here. Our church numbers show that around 50% of our church community actively serves here at the church in some capacity, be that kids ministry or our tech and safety teams or with setup and teardown or hospitality crews. 
And so I want to thank you for how so many of you have faithfully served the Lord by serving this church community. It's such a gift and a blessing. And although I'll say this, I think service to God should, should be in our local church. Service to God, however, is by no means limited to serving in your local church. I know that many of you also serve as coaches and tutors in the community, serving amongst the elders as supporters and caregivers. I know even for several of you, you you function basically as a mentor or even as a counselor to others in our church and in our community, especially those in marriages that are struggling. You step into those places to love and to serve them. Listen, I say this to remind you that your service to God does not have to be within, within a church or inside of a church. But my hope is that if you cannot answer the question of who, of where, and of how you are serving, that you would jump in and begin to serve someone here. Because we'd sure love to see you do that. We're talking, though, about service and submission. And we began by saying that Jesus, observing that he served others self-sacrificially, We then saw Jesus saying, I did this as an example for you, and a servant is not greater than his master, which means that we as Jesus' followers are to serve others self-sacrificially. Again, quoting Wearsby, he said, the people who refuse to submit to God's authority will never really discover who they are or what God wants them to do. But please hear me the third and final thing, and this is how we'll wrap up. Is that self-sacrificial service is the byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. It's not just that you are called to serve, but hear me please, the third thing it's worth writing down is that self-sacrificial service is the byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. Remember that Jesus doesn't just give an example or mere instruction to his followers. The gospel is good news in that he gives so much more than that. He gives himself. His own life by his spirit working a work of transformation that works inside of us. Remember, one of the times that Jesus spoke to his friends about his looming departure is recorded for you in John's Gospel, chapter 16, where he said this. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It's in John 14 where he makes this even more clear where he says, and I pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Do you understand that the gospel is good news because Christ is not just our pattern. He's not just our example to follow. No, he's more than a pattern. He also supplies the power that enables us to be who he's called us to be and to become who he is committed to transforming us into. You see, if Christ was simply providing an example for us, he'd crush us. But Christ also supplies our power to be the kind of person that he's called us to be. The the words that are recorded in Philippians come to mind for me. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That it's God's work inside of you that he's faithfully committed to. But will you yield and submit yourself to it? You see, in Scripture there in Philippians, it says God works in you both to will and to do the things that are his good pleasure. Hear that that God provides in you, is transforming work in you, is to provide the desire and the ability to do what he's calling you to do. 
please hear me, following the example of Jesus is to live as a servant of all. It requires far more than mere imitation. It requires incarnation. You cannot live in love like Jesus without the spirit of Jesus at work inside of your life, transforming you from the inside out. You see, as members of his kingdom, as citizens of heaven, you have something more powerful than just external examples of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. We have the king himself living inside of us, transforming us and shaping us into his image. Let's do this. Look back real quick in John 13. Where Jesus says, I did this, verse 15, as an example for you. Okay, think about this. Jesus says his actions give us an example. But is it an example of humility? That God would stoop down to serve men? Or is it an example, as others suggest, of his patience and kindness, that he do for them what they and their custom should be doing for him as their rabbi and master? Or what Jesus did in that moment, as others would say, was an act of, an example of forgiveness and love when Jesus washed all of their feet, including his betrayers. But do you see the example that Jesus gives? Embodies several different things that are wrapped up into one singular action. Think through this. My mind goes to the singular fruit of the Spirit that Paul would write about. In Galatians chapter 5, he says that that singular fruit of the Spirit, that it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Remember, he says, but the fruit, singular noun, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit, singular, has this plural experience. Its actions are seen in all of these different ways that are not just seen exempt from each other. No, they are all present in the same moment. If God's Spirit is at work in you, it's saying you should see all of this at work in your life. You see, God's work in your life is to make you into the likeness and image of Jesus. His work is described as producing the very thing we see in Jesus in this moment where we watch him wash their feet and we marvel saying, surely this is an act of humility. And yes, also his patience and kindness and forbearance are present. Oh, and look at his forgiveness and his love there too. This is the work that God's wanting to do in your life to reshape my heart and yours so that it's seen there as a mirror image of Jesus in this very moment in John 13. Please hear me. We will vary undoubtedly in the gifts of the Spirit that we possess or don't possess. However, we should possess the same fruit of the Spirit, which is still going to manifest in unique and beautiful different ways in each of us. But that fruit is the byproduct of God's Spirit at work in your life. And it will produce love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit's job is to make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus as we submit and yield to Jesus' lordship and the Spirit's work in our lives. You see, the way that we learn to love and serve like Jesus did is by yielding to his work and yielding to the voice of his Spirit in your life. You see, really the goal is for all of us to live with an eternal purpose and impact as the Holy Spirit leads and develops us into the kinds of people who love and serve as Jesus has loved and served us. And I want you to know as 
As I think as wonderful it is, all these things that we as a church have been able to be a part of here locally and how we've been able to serve the community as a church and support the community and even globally what God has given us opportunity and opened a door for us to step into, I still believe that the fruit of God's Spirit in your life is quite possibly the greatest evangelical reach of our church into our community as he reshapes your life and leads you to love and to serve others around you. I think that is a far greater and far more powerful thing than we've seen him open any door to do. Oh, please hear me say that coming to our Sunday church gathering is not you doing your Christian service. We believe it is when you are equipped for your Christian service. We tend to say it this way, that we gather as a church in order to scatter into the community well. Because the success of this church is not so much based upon what's said, sung, or done here, so much as it's based upon what you do when you leave here, because scripture says you're the minister. And if ministry is going to happen, it's going to be through your life when you leave here. Remember Ephesians 4 says that God has given some to be apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers. The reason that I exist in this role is, it says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. See, it's true that not all of us will be called into full-time vocational ministry where we all work for the church vocationally. However, all of us as Christians, as little Christ, should be involved in full-time Christian service and living. Because Christian service and love simply means that we love and serve and treat others as Jesus has loved and served and treated us. My friends, all of us are entrusted with the work of the ministry. Again, quoting Wearsby, he said, ministry is not something we do for God, but something God does in and through us. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, Father, we thank you for the amazing and shocking love and character that you have displayed. God, that what we find in you is not what we had feared or anticipated, but we found gentle love and compassion, a God who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. So Jesus, we thank you today with fresh eyes for the kind of love that you have for us, a self-sacrificial kind. And Jesus, we're praying that you would then develop that in our lives that we would yield and submit to you as Lord of our lives and make you and your kingdom our top priority. And that, Jesus, you would shape our hearts and our character and our conduct to be used by you to love people the way that you have loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.